Let's pray. Father, as we get into your word today, I do pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts. God, we want to hear from you. And so I ask that we would open ourselves up for what you have to say to us individually, where we're at with you, our relationship with you, where we're at with others, that God, you would have your way and that we would leave here today just encouraged in that relationship with you. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you love us so much, that God, you gave us your word that is solid and steadfast and sure. So again, we give you this time this morning and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, chapter seven, chapter seven in Hebrews is one of those tough places. Like chapter six is tough. Chapter seven's tough in a different way because it talks about this character that is like, where did he come from? Who is this guy? And you know, I remember when I first got saved, I think I was in a church and for some reason I had to get up and I had to read this and I didn't even know how to say Melchizedek. I said, how do you say that, you know? But, but just thinking about, he's this obscure person, even in scripture, here's what's insane. This guy we're gonna talk about for a whole chapter, basically, gets three verses in the Old Testament, three verses. And he's like on the scene, off the scene, gone, and yet, he takes this major place in the book of Hebrews. Now, you can get in trouble with chapter seven if you tend to take it out of context and not where it belongs. Melchizedek is a type of Christ. Obviously, the writer of Hebrews is telling us that. And here's what you need to understand. When God says something is a type, it's a type. That doesn't mean everything in the Old Testament is a type of something in the New Testament, which a lot of people do. So when, listen, when the Bible does it, I call that God is saying Melchizedek is a type of Christ, and, and we understand that. It bothers me when people, there's some people that take every nuance of the tabernacle and say that's a type of something in the New Testament. You know, uh, when I read that stuff, number one, here's what I go. Here's what I do. I go, man, I'm really stupid because I didn't get that out of that. And then I think, where did that come from? So be careful. And, and again, just a warning. If God does it, it's okay. When we do it, not so much. So he's letting us know something about this character who mysteriously appeared and for all intents and purposes, mysteriously disappeared. But yet, he showed a picture of something so valid to the people he's writing to. Now, part of me in chapter seven, I have to be really honest, I get to chapter seven every time I teach through Hebrews, and part of me wants to skip it. Not because it's complicated, but because I, I'm not sure it has that much application for us. Most of us aren't coming out of Judaism. Most of us aren't coming out of a place where somebody represented us to God and having to deal with that. So, but yet, yeah, there's, there's some powerful verses that we can take and apply, and I, and I get that. But the overall thing, and we're gonna read through that, and some of you might get really bored, and I guess I'm gonna say tough. You know, just bore through it, because you may not, you may not appreciate it. So, what's happening? The people in the book of Hebrews, they're freaking out right now. The people he's writing to, they're confused. 
There are a bunch of Christians who came out of Judaism who are suffering persecution by fellow Jews that are not sure what to do, and I'm sure the Gentiles don't want a lot to do with them either. And they're trying to, listen, man, they're trying to do life, they're trying to follow the Lord, they're trying to do what they're supposed to, but they're getting inundated with all of this stuff, and they just, listen, I, I feel for them. I don't think they know what direction to turn. An author of Hebrews is going, I'm going to take care of you. And the one thing he's brought up a couple times, remember Jesus is greater than the prophets. Jesus is greater than the Old Testament. Jesus is greater than, than uh, the angels. Jesus is greater than the law, right? And he's brought all that up. And he says, hey, he's the great high priest in their minds. And again, for us, it's foreign. In their minds, they're going, excuse me? High priest? He can't be a high priest. Why? Because he's from the tribe of Judah, one thing we know as Jews, not us here, but as Jews, is you can't be a high priest unless you're from the tribe of Levi and, more particularly, unless you're in the line of Aaron. And so he's blurted that out a couple times. This guy's a high priest. They gotta be, listen, they gotta be thinking, maybe I'm following the wrong thing. Maybe I need to go back to Judaism because this whole thing is mixing me up. So now he's gonna let them know how he can be both king and high priest. And it has to do with this dude called Melchizedek. So let's read the first couple verses here in chapter seven. He says, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, remember he's just brought him up at the end of chapter six. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part, a, a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, neither having beginning of days nor end of life, but made, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now that says a lot. Listen, man, it says a lot. Doesn't give us, you know, the whole context. For homework, for homework, you gotta read all of Genesis 14. I'll give, you, I'll give you my synopsis of Genesis 14, but you should read it because sometimes my synopsis aren't real, real uh, right on, so to speak. You had five kings in, in the area of Sodom and Gomorrah who were hanging out together. And you have to remember, at that time, a king was what we may call a mayor. He was a king of a city, not a king of a nation, but of a city. So you had five kings, but yet, that's a lot of people. And then you had four kings from another area that decided they wanted to come down and whoop those five kings. So they have a battle. And the four kings win. And they take all of their people. Here's what's crazy. When you won at that time, you took all their people home. So they took all their people, and that included this guy named Lot. Remember Lot? Abraham and Lot? And Lot went his own way and hung out in Sodom. Well, they took Lot. Well, Abraham finds out about it, and Abraham, here's what blows my mind. Abraham says, I'm gonna go get, I'm gonna go get my nephew. And he gets 318 guys. Now, now, a couple things amaze me about this. Number one, that he's got 318 people working for him. He was a wealthy dude. There's no doubt about it. You know, when people, when people say God doesn't like wealthy people, I'm thinking, oh, you might want to read your Bible. 
Seems to me David was pretty wealthy. Seems to me Solomon was really wealthy. And Abraham, if you got 350 or 318 people just, just that you can grab to go to war with, I think you're doing okay. So he grabs those. Now the other thing that amazes me is he takes 318 people to fight four kings who already whooped on five kings. You know what that tells me? This is the beginning of the Israeli commando uh, units in Israel, right? Hey, man, they take them out. They go and they win. They take out those four kings, and they rescue everybody. I think that's pretty cool. They go get their people and bring them back. And now, listen, as he gets his people and he comes back in chapter 14, he runs into this guy, and, and it's just like bizarre. It's like, it's like Abraham's traveling back, and poof, here's this guy, Melchizedek. And he shows up with bread and wine. That's where a lot of people make a lot out of that. I'm not sure we need to do that. You can if you want. I don't care. You know, when people get into it, I don't care. But he shows up with bread and wine. And then he blesses Abraham. That's what's incredible. And he's the king of Salem, later to become Jerusalem. Right? So he's the king there. He blesses Abraham. And Abraham gives him a tenth of, of the stuff, and it's implied here later on, the tenth of the stuff on top. Not, you know, a lot of us, a lot of us, we go, I'll give to God after I pay for everything else, and I'll give God leftovers. You know, he is so blessed when you do that. I just want you to know. It's like when people tell me that, I think, why do you do that? And especially, here's, here's what I love. Oh, these clothes are all old. I'm gonna give them to the missionaries. Oh, God bless you. You're so generous. Do you know what the Navajo name used to be for missionary? Giver of old clothes. Ooh, that kind of hurts, huh? If you buy a new couch and you're gonna give your old couch to the church or to a missionary, why don't you give the new couch to the church or missionary and you keep the old couch? Because that's why I bought a new couch. Anyway, he gives a tenth off the top. I think that's incredible. So listen, he gives it, and then here we get, we get a little bit more about him. His name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. His position, his place, king of Salem, king of peace. Who is the king of righteousness and the king of peace? Jesus, right? So a lot of people, listen, a lot of people believe Melchizedek was a pre-incarnation appearance of, of uh, Jesus in, in that generation, I'm not one of those, and I'll tell you why in just a moment. I don't care if you believe that, that's fine. You know, hey, it's divided as you read stuff, but I don't believe it because look at right at the end of verse three, it says, it says, he, you know, as far as his genealogy, we'll talk about that in a moment, and having neither beginning of days or end of life, but listen to what it says, but made like the Son of God. Well, that tells me he was somebody Listen, Melchizedek was somebody who was a representation of Jesus in that century at that time. Jesus is not a representation of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a representation of Jesus. Don't get it backwards. So listen, that's who he was. Now when it talks about, listen, when it says this guy didn't have father, or you know, it says without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days or end of life. I, I believe all that's telling us is he just showed up on the scene. We don't know who his mom and dad were. We don't know what his background was, and we'll get more into that in a minute. 
in it. We don't know those things. And so we, you know, he says it's not there. I don't believe it was saying he lived eternally. Now, again, if you want to interpret it that way, I don't care. It's fine. You can do that. But I don't believe that's what it's saying. I believe it's saying this guy showed up from nowhere and went back to nowhere. And when he was done, three verses. You get three verses in Genesis 14. And then you don't hear about him again for a thousand years. And then in Psalm 110, and you can read that later, in Psalm 110, you get one verse. And you don't hear about him for a thousand years. And then all of a sudden in Hebrews, this guy pops up again. And he pops up in chapter 5. He pops up in the end of chapter 6. And then we get a whole chapter in 7 explaining this guy. That's kind of crazy, isn't it? When you really think about obscure people. Like your heroes in the Old Testament. How many people think about, wow, Melchizedek's one of my heroes? Not. You just don't even think about him. Some people's never even heard about Mel who? So listen, here he is, and he lays it out, and he lets us know this is what happened. Now, what is, why does he bring up Melchizedek? Because he's got to, listen, the author has to let this group of believers know that it's okay to worship Jesus as a great high priest. It's all right. And how can it be all right? when he's not from Levi. So he's laying that out. He's saying, listen, man, it's, it's a legit deal. I kind of like that, right? I'm not just making this up. I, I'm not just telling you he's greater than the, the, the priests we've had. I'm gonna prove it to you. So here's the proof. Listen, he introduces the guy. Then he says in verse four, now consider how great this man was. So here's what he's saying. He introduced him. Now he's saying, let's think about who he was. Let's think about what happened and let's get all of that in context of what what we're talking about. So let's now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoil. So here's what he's saying. The one that we all love. Who are the two Jewish heroes of all time? Abraham and Moses. You don't go to Israel and badmouth Abe or Mo, right? You just don't do it. That's their heroes. That's who they listen. That's who they look up to. And he's saying, he's saying, this guy, listen, consider how great this man that we're talking about is if Abraham tithed to him. Now, here's something that sort of blows my mind. Here's a little bit about tithing. We'll, just, we'll talk about it briefly because we don't do it too much here. And a couple things. Number one, people will often ask me, should they tithe? Is it, is it, you know, do they have to tithe? I go, you don't have to do anything, number one. And, you know, but it is interesting that before the law, Abraham was tithing. What was Abraham's motivation for tithing? Think about it. What was his motivation for tithing? His heart. He wanted to give from his heart. He cared and he wanted to give to the Lord from his heart. Remember, he was declared a priest of the Most High God. So he gave from his heart. How should we as believers give? We should give from our heart. My watch is talking to me. So we should give from our heart. And my watch wants to give, I think. It should be something, listen, man, it should not be something people will ask me often, and I've, I've shared this before. People will say, Pat, how much should I give? That's a question you do not want to ask me. You ask me how much you should give, here's what I will tell you, everything. 
Everything, empty your checking account right now. Just empty it all. And you all laugh. Every time I say that, everybody laughs because you're not going to do it because you're not giving from your heart. No, I'm kidding. But listen, <laughs> listen, shouldn't that be our attitude? We should give God everything. I love the line in the, the song we sing. It's no sacrifice that I give to the one who saved my life. I give him everything. So, you know, having said that, here's what I think. If you want a place to start, do what Abraham did. Give 10%. You can always start there. I love what Pastor Chuck Smith used to say. He always said, thank God we're not bound to give only 10%. We can give more, right? And that's who we are. So the guy gave, listen, he gave from his heart, and then he says, listen, he tied to him, to this uh, uh, Melchizedek, verse five, and indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, now he's bringing up the contrast, those who are of the sons of Levi who receive the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here's what he's saying, man. It was commanded that the Levites receive tithe from their brethren, from their own people. Abraham gave to somebody outside of the circle, if you want to put it that way, outside of the family. That's incredible. Listen, this guy's trying to blow their minds a little bit. Think about what happened. Think about what Abraham did. You claim him as your father, then act like it. If he's your father, act like your father. And he gave, listen, he gave, and then it says that Melchizedek blessed him. And then what does he say? The lesser is blessed by the greater. Now, just for a moment, just try and, try and, try and get a Jewish little yarmulke on and get, you know, kind of act Jewish for a moment. Do you hear what he just said? Your hero's Abraham. But your hero maybe should be Melchizedek. Because he's greater than Abraham. That's what he just said. That's incredible. I mean, that's a mind blower. I don't think he was picking a fight. I think he was letting them know something. And, and again, sometimes we have to process things. And maybe for us, maybe for us, we've got different things in place that, you know, take the place of the Lord and we put here and we put there. Not too many of us, again, are Jews and, and practicing sacrifices and doing that whole thing. None of us, I don't think, are doing sacrifices. I don't think so. Not a good idea. But listen, if, and, and, Yet they've got to, listen, they've got to process this. Here's the thing. If they're going to move on to maturity, they have to deal with this issue. And it might be another issue for us, but you've got to deal with it. If you're going to mature in the Lord, you've got to deal with situations in your life as they come up. Their situation happened to be the, the priesthood. Our situation might be something else, but that was their situation. And he just let them into something. You, you almost worship Abraham. You think he's the greatest of all. Well, let me tell you something. There's one greater than Abraham. His name's Melchizedek. Here's what, here's, what I, here's what I would think if I was a Jew. Seriously, dude? Three verses. Three verses is all he got. Do you know how many chapters Abraham got? Come on. Well, he's greater than, doesn't matter how many verses. He came on the scene, and here's the crazy thing, he was a king and a priest. 
What is the thing we know from the Old Testament? You could not be king and priest. You could be priest and prophet. You could be king and prophet. But you couldn't be king and priest. But Melchizedek was a king and was a priest. Again, he is a perfect type of Jesus and a representation of Jesus. So he lets him know that. He goes, hey, the greater is blessed or, or the greater blesses the lesser. Then he says something that gets a little bit complicated, eight, nine, and 10. He says, here, mortal men receives tith receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who received the tithes, uh, paid through, the, uh, through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now, in verse 8 at the end there, we kind of understand the beginning, mortal man receives tithes, and then he says, but there he received them, and then he says, it is witness that he still lives. I don't think he's talking about Melchizedek. I think he's talking about Jesus. And I think he's trying, again, redirect that and refocus that. You can try and interpret that how you want, because it does get complicated. But here's the point he's trying to make. Levi paid tithes to Abraham, and he's pushing him in that direction. What is he doing? Quit worshiping this and start worshiping the reality. All of this, listen, all of this was a shadow of what was to come. Everything, listen, in the Old Testament, it's a shadow of the reality. And here's what he's saying, reality check. Let's get into reality. So therefore, verse 11, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? And here's where Psalm 10, 110, verse 4 comes in. And you can read that. He's gonna, we're going to read it in a moment. But he pushes that. So here's what he's saying. David prophesied that there was another order of priesthood, Melchizedek. And we're going to read about it. So why would God do another order if the Levitical priesthood was enough? If it was enough, why would he do another one? Well, because it wasn't enough. And when he says, if it was perfect, listen, therefore, if perfection was through that, and by perfection, he doesn't mean becoming sinless. He means us in our standing before God. I believe all of humanity, whether they know it or not, whether, whether people know it or not, there is this void in our lives. We were created to worship God. And period, and we try and fill that with whatever. Some people don't want to recognize God, don't want to acknowledge God, and then they're, they're stuck and they're trying to fill that void with something else. And we were created that way. Man was created to experience God. Why do we have false religions? Because they're trying to get to God. They're trying to earn a way, they're trying to figure out a way. And you know, it is interesting to look at some. I've, I've had the privilege of traveling around the world basically looking at different religions up close and personal. I've been with some tribal groups in Mexico that are animist and getting into that thing and they'll climb a mountain to shove an arrow in an agave plant thinking that somehow they're gonna get close to their God. I've watched, I've watched Hindus and their celebration on the Ganges River. I've seen Buddhists in Thailand shaking the sticks and pouring out the things. Hey, I've got to see stuff. What are all of those people trying to do? They're trying to come into the presence of God. And here's what he's saying. If the Levitical priesthood could bring you into that, then why did God bring another priesthood along? It didn't work. Think about, think about the Old Testament. If you were a woman, how close could you get to God? 
the outer court, right? The court of the women. You couldn't even, you couldn't even get in the area I call the barbecue area, right? You couldn't get in where they're roasting and everything. You had to stand outside and say, honey, bring me a piece of that. That's as close as God you got. And then, and then if you were a guy, the close you could get was to the barbecue area. If you were a priest, you got to go in the building, in the holy place. Are you getting my point? You couldn't get to God. So what was the object of the priests? The priests were to represent you before God. That stinks. And he goes, if perfection could be done that way, then it's a good thing, but... God brought us a better way. So you're getting his argument now. You're getting where he's going. And then he says, listen, he says, he says, he says, why would he bring the other one at the end of verse 11 to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For, verse 12, the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change in the law. Oh, now listen, man, this guy's getting down to the nitty gritty. I love this. He's kind of, let's go on a journey. Let me talk to you about Melchizedek. And everybody's like laid back. Okay, we can listen about him. You say, what? Listen, when he said he's greater than Abraham, that got some people's attention. They started, they, you know, like sometimes in church you fall asleep, you nod off. And this guy, listen, these guys are going, what? And now they're paying attention, and he goes, now, listen, he drops a little bit more. He goes, hey, there's another priesthood that's not in the priesthood of Aaron, but this priesthood's in Melchizedek. Seriously, dude? And now, what did he just say? If the priesthood's not valid, check this out, neither is the law. Oh, wow. I can hear some light bulbs for them going off, ding, 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 woo. Yeah, and some people smoke. Verse 13, for he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe. Who's he talking about? Jesus, right? He's saying, because we're talking about Jesus, he belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. He says, for it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah of which Moses spoke nothing concerning the priesthood. Hey, he's honest. He goes, listen, this is what the Old Testament says. This is what Moses said. I know that. And then, verse 15, and, yet, and, and it is yet far more evident if... In the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest. Oh, in the likeness of Melchizedek. That's why he brought the guy up. Who has come, listen carefully, not according to the law of fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, Psalm 110, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For homework, check out Exodus 28 and 29 as it begins to lay out the priests. And here's the thing, the only people who were priests, Levites served in the temple, but the priests had to come from Aaron. And for you to be a priest, you had to, number one, when he talks about fleshly, right? He goes, hey, he didn't come from this, from uh, the law of a fleshly commandment. In order to serve, you had to bring your pedigree papers. You had to prove that you were in the lineage of Aaron and you had to show that. Then once you proved that, then they examined your body to make sure you didn't have blemishes and you went through all of that. Here's what's going on with the Levitical priesthood and the Aaronic priesthood, if you will. Not moronic, Aaronic. Here's what's going on there. It's all external. And what does he say? Oh, the 
Melchizedek priesthood has to do with the heart, has to do with the life. And what qualifies Jesus as that is he lives an endless life. He's gonna get into the character in a minute. So kind of keep that in mind when you think about it. And he says, listen, man, he quotes Psalm 110, which they all knew. Listen, they knew their, their Old Testament. And in verse 18, listen what he says. For on the one hand, I love this. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because, it's weak, because of its weakness and unprofitableness, for the law made nothing perfect. If you are a Bible marker, a Bible underliner, even if you're not, underline that passage. The law made nothing perfect. Underline, underline your neighbor's Bible. Underline everybody's Bible. The law made nothing perfect. We need to know that. And this is his point. Listen. The law was temporary. The law was never designed to make people perfect. The law's whole objective was to let us know that we can't. And that's the point of it. And so listen, then the law, I love that. So on the one hand, here's what he says. So on the one hand, it was kind of weak and useless is what he's saying. That's pretty intense stuff, right? You know, the New King James is unprofitableness. That means useless, you know? And he goes, listen, it was that because the law made nothing perfect. Now, in the middle of verse 19, now on the other hand, I love that, right? There is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Woo! Listen, now it's getting exciting. Now those of you who fell asleep, wake up. Because it's going to get good, man. It is going to get amazing. I love this part. He goes, hey, listen, there's a bringing. There's a bringing of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And so what was the whole thing? They couldn't draw. They could get this close to God, and then, er, that was it. It's kind of like, like COVID today, right? doesn't go more than six feet. It was sarcasm. It just goes, er, it stops. And that's the way you had to, you went so far, you had to stop. And you couldn't go any further. But with this better hope, we can draw near to God. We can be close to him. Now he's gonna develop that whole thought and it just, listen, it just gets better and better. Verse 20, he says, and inasmuch as he was not made priest with an oath, talking about the others, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Check this out. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Yes, yes. Listen, it was a promise. It was a promise. God made an oath. Check this out. Here's, here's a little test for you. Do a study and see how many times God took an oath. I'll give you hints more than once, but less than three. Hmm. Study and find out because listen carefully. I think this is important. God didn't take an oath often, obviously. Twice he took an oath. I would really want you to study it, but I can't hold it in. He took an oath with Abraham. Remember when he walked through the animal parts? And he took an oath in Psalm 110. That's the only time God took an oath. What does that tell you? Our salvation is so good. 
right? Jesus, he says, listen, Jesus is, what did he say? A surety of a better covenant. Jesus is our guarantee. Why are you gonna go to heaven? I'm going to heaven because of Jesus, not because I'm a good person, although I think I'm okay as a person. I'm not, you know, but I'm not that holy guy. I'm not the guy who does perfect things. And hey, I need Jesus. It cracks me up when people go, well, you know, Jesus is a crutch. No, he's not. He's a whole stinking ambulance. He's a hospital. He's everything. I need Jesus. But listen carefully. Jesus is my guarantee of a better covenant. I don't have to deal with that stuff. Now, it gets better. Listen, he gets better and better and better. Verse 23, he says, Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. So, so. Check out numbers. Go through numbers some and see when you get, I know you guys love numbers, but not, you know, and I've been hounding on numbers for a while. So I'm thinking you're supposed to read it. But go through numbers and find out how many times they had to change priests. Every time one died, a new one came on, right? Eleazar and then Phinehas, and then you go down that generation, generation, generation. Josephus said by 70 AD, there were over 300 priests from the time they were instituted till then. Others say less, he says that many. But remember from about, I would say from about five or six BC till about 70 AD, it was very corrupt. And the priesthood was changing because people were buying it. So some of this should speak to them about that. But listen, man, he says to them, he says, those guys, they could only serve so long, verse 24, but he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Jesus, listen, he lives forever. Our priest is not gonna die. He's not gonna get replaced. Now, the best part, are you ready? Are you ready for this? Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Wow, is that a verse or what? Man, here's what I'm thinking, man. Those Jews sitting there the first century, man, they got to that part and they're going, wow, who needs a priesthood? Now, again, a lot of us never were in. A, I was in a religion. In the Orthodox Church, you had a priest that represented you to God. You didn't, you didn't even know what you were doing. You just sat there. He did everything for you, and you did that. That's a drag. That's not a relationship with the Lord. That's a religion. And here's what he's letting us know, man. Here's what he's saying. Jesus, listen, man. Jesus, because he lives forever, he's going to save you to the uttermost, I love that, man. He's gonna save you where? Completely, holy. Do you understand that you are 100% completely saved when you come to Jesus? Not almost saved, and we've been talking about that as we go through the warning passages. People get freaked out. If you believe in Jesus, you've trusted him for your salvation, he didn't give you almost eternal life. He didn't give you a taste of eternal life. He didn't save you for so many years. What did he save you? For the uttermost. Woo, I like that. Now listen, I know, I know some of the evangelists in the past, like Billy Sunday used to say, he saves you from the guttermost. I, I get, but that's not what this is saying. This isn't talking about he saves you from horrible sin. This is talking about he saves you forever. No doubt he saves. There's not a sin that you can commit that God won't forgive if you come to him. And, and give your heart to him. So listen, man, and then, and then this, is, this really gets me excited. He always lives to make intercession for, I, I changed that, I put for me. When I was sick, a couple months ago, I know a lot of people were praying for me, I got a lot of notes, 
I got a lot of encouragement. I knew the church was praying. I knew people were praying. And that's a blessing. That's good. But I got to tell you, knowing that Jesus was making intercession for me, that's it. I think you guys pray fine. But not like him. Man, and listen, he ever lives to do that. That's why he exists. Do you, do you get a hold of that? The purpose in heaven is so that he can make intercession for us. That should, like, that should make your day like really, really good, right? And then it goes on. Listen, it goes on in verse 26. We got we to gotta hurry up. <laughs> for such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separated from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. So listen to his character. Listen to what he is. He's holy. Most of us understand that, right? Holy, separated, harmless. Jesus never harmed anything. He's undefiled. When he got close to sin, it didn't get on him. He could get close to it without it defiling him. And when it says separated from sinners, it doesn't mean he went, excuse me, sinners. It meant that their sin did not get in him. And so he could do all of that. Listen, man, I love this description of him. And then it says, man, he is higher than the heavens who does not, verse 27, need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins, then for the people's. For this he did, underline this, once for all when he offered up himself. He doesn't do it daily. He doesn't do it weekly. Some churches weekly crucified Jesus over and over and over again. He did it once for all. It's done. It's finished. Hallelujah, huh? And he didn't have to offer a sacrifice for himself. Why? Because he was sinless. A little bit better. Verse 28, for the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness. But the word of oath which came after the law appoints the son who has been perfected forever. Wow. Now, let's think about this. Seriously? You want to go back to those guys? Here's what I'm thinking, man. I'm thinking they read this and they're going, man, how duped could we be to want to go back to that when this is so good? Listen how good it is. And he's just letting them know how great this thing we call salvation and this relationship with Jesus and how great he is as our high priest. Saints, I think, listen, I, I know this chapter is a little bit like, what? But I also know it's a little bit like, what? How good is that? And we can celebrate in who we are in Christ. And we need to be those people. And we need to listen, man. And if you're still, if your mind's still going, the Melchizedek thing, I'm still going like, I don't understand. I don't, just. And get a hold of this. When he saves you, he saves you to the uttermost. That he's your guarantee of a better covenant. That he lives to make intercession for you. That he is perfected forever. Never going to change. You're not going to wake up one morning and have a whole different high priest and a whole different set of things to go by. You got one, and that's Jesus. Remember that part. Let's stand up and pray. Father, we do thank you, God, again. Lord, what, 
What an amazing thing. I just think about those guys sitting there in that church and, and reading this letter, kind of going through it, unscrolling it. And I, I even like to think about the guy reading it because you know people were reading it to one another. And that guy reading it to the church, had to, he had to read this part and, and just be amazed at what he was reading and the encouragement that it would bring to their hearts and to their souls. And God, I pray, I, pray, I, know, I know again, we're not coming from the whole uh, Judaism and that thing, but Lord, there's things in our life we need to move on from if we're going to mature. And the only way we're gonna do that is by recognizing who Jesus Christ is. That he is the son of God. That he died on a cross for our sins to save us completely and fully, to guarantee us that better covenant and to make intercession for us. How good is that? So I pray, God, that would stick in our hearts and we would be a generation of people who we fall more in love with our God day by day, moment by moment, and that we honor you with our lives. And I'm gonna ask you to stand an attitude of prayer for a couple moments. And if you are here today and, and maybe, listen, maybe we're reading this and this really, really stuck your heart, man, like an like a arrow went in your heart. And you're thinking, I don't know Jesus that way. Maybe you're a religious person. And it got to you and here you are this morning thinking, I wanna know Jesus that way, the way you talked about. Well, here's the good news. All you have to do is call on his name. And by that, here's what we mean. You need to let him know that you know that you're a sinner. God doesn't need to know that. You need to know that. And you need to admit before God that you know you're a sinner. Secondly, secondly, you need to be sorry for your sin, which if you're gonna admit you're a sinner, I would think naturally it would follow that you'd be sorry for it. And then here's the greatest news. Ask him to forgive your sin, and he will. He will forgive your sin. He will wipe it away. And listen carefully. He will save you completely. So if you want that reality in your life today, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And, and again, some people will, will tell me afterwards, are you just putting words in people's mouths? Yeah, kind of. I'm going to say a prayer. You can say this prayer after me. You can say it out loud. You can say it silently. The main part is you're going to be sincere about this. If you're watching from home, say this prayer. If God is touching your heart right there, say this prayer with us. If you're backslidden today, come home. Man, come back to Jesus. He loves you and he cares about you and he hasn't forgotten you. So come home, say this prayer with us. Jesus, today I confess to you that I am a sinner. And I'm sorry, God, that I sinned against you. Today, I'm asking you to forgive me. Jesus, thank you for dying for my sin. Thank you today for your forgiveness. And now I want you to come into my heart and I want you to change me. Jesus, come into my life and guide me. Right now, I want you to be my Lord and my Savior.